Hello and welcome to The Hidden Lives of Writers. My name's Fiona Snickers and I'm joined by my co-host, Gail. Gail, how has your week been? Fiona, I am an overachieving writer this week. I'm writing a new book and I've got it into my head because I'm writing something totally different from my normal work, I've got it into my head that I have to write it quickly or mm-hmm. it's not going to work. So normally my target when I write is 500 words a day at best. Right. And now I'm writing a 1,000 words a day. And in order to do that, I'm also planning ahead, which is not something I normally do in such detail so early in the book. So it's a completely new experience. Touch words so far this week I've managed it, but it's it's been... Quite intense. Finding time for a thousand words in a workday is quite intense. Are you breaking that thousand words up into little increments or are you doing it all in one session? I prefer doing it in one session. Um, so when I can, I am. But I'm not managing entirely. So life gets in the way. For example, I wrote 625 words this morning (laughs) and then looked at the clock and saw that I had to get in my car and come here. Um, (laughs) So there are words waiting for me. But for me, I'm trying to do this. When I write a short story, Mm -hmm. I vomit the short story out. Like I sit down and I write two to 3,000 words in a sitting. And For some reason, I've got it into my head that this book has to be written in the same vomited out way. And so one session is better for me. And if you do manage a thousand words in a session, how long does that normally take you? It takes me about 40 minutes. I'm quite a fast writer, but it is because I don't do any editing. Mm-hmm. And I don't aspire to write beautifully. I never have. I never will. I aspire to tell a story. And once you take that pressure of not writing beautifully off your shoulders, it's much easier to just, like I said, vomit out your story. Obviously, some days are faster. Some days are a lot slower. Because I'm at the beginning of the book, I'm in that very excited, vomited out fast um, phase. I think the 40 minutes might slow down as I go. And during those 40 minutes, you are incommunicado, you're not looking at your phone, kids aren't allowed to interrupt you. How does that work? I wish, I wish. (laughs) That's how it should be. I try, so the kids, it's, I try and do it when the kids aren't around at all, although Mm -hmm. that, again, that's not always realistic. Yesterday, I had a 13 year old staring at me as I wrote, (laughs) and I can't do the incommunicado thing. I am very addicted to my phone, I'm afraid to say. So I will stop and look at a tweet and Mm -hmm. check Facebook hasn't done anything except exciting while I've been gone for three minutes and um, but I do try to and I think I actually am going to have to reach a point where I do do that cut it off are you managing to keep up that morning writing cut off from everything I am I'm managing to keep that time alive but at the moment well this week I wasn't writing in the sense of working on a novel but I am working on adapting a novel that I wrote a few years ago for the screen. Ooh. And I was lucky enough this week to have a glimpse at the advice that Netflix sends out to people who are going to submit a pitch deck to them. And I did not know what a pitch deck was. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps you should explain. Yes. Yeah, so it it is basically all the information that uh, a would-be filmmaker submits to a streamer like Netflix as their pitch saying, you know, this is our project. Are you interested in it? These are the people we've got on board, etc. 
So this is their advice to people who are submitting a pitch deck. And uh, I didn't get a very long look at it. I might get a better look at it in the future. But the most interesting thing to me was their guidance regarding who is your main character. And this is how they phrase it. A flawed individual's life is thrown out of balance by an inciting incident which triggers an external want that they can only achieve through overcoming their flaw. And essentially what it means is who is your lead, what triggers the story, and where does it go? So that it just summed it up in an interesting way to me. And now I'm looking at all TV shows and movies in that way. You know, what is this flaw that the person's got? What is their external want? What was the inciting incident? Does it all work? You know, where does it all go? Have you ever thought of it like that? Never. And while I was writing it, I wasn't actually thinking in those terms, you know, what is the fatal flaw, yes. what is the inciting incident, etc. But when you look back at something you wrote, you can actually parse it in that way. You can break it down and see, okay, it's this, and this is their external want, and this is how they achieve it. And yes, your your main character almost always has some kind of internal flaws that they yeah. have to overcome in order to get what they want. Yeah, very, very interesting. It's like um, a few weeks ago, we talked about saving the cat. And I mm. went back and mm-hmm. had a look into it and then applied it to my previous books. And it is something that, that you can break stories down into, even if you weren't consciously aware that you were doing it. Um, I think maybe a lot of us as storytellers use all these different paradigms and formula without realizing that we're doing it. Yes, yes. But to become aware of it and actually think about what mm. you've done and how to sort of speak it back to somebody who wants to know that mm. information, it's just an interesting discipline. Oh, very exciting. I can't wait to hear more. And Fiona, what have you been reading, watching, hearing this week? I have been having great fun uh, reading another recommendation from Gail Schimmel. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, it's my fault if it's terrible. <laughs> I'm definitely the follower in this relationship. Gail recommends and I immediately follow. So this book is called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabriel Zevin. I am enjoying it so much. Um, at the time that you reviewed it for the Good Book Appreciation Society, Gail, when you were looking for it, you came across yes. some sort of Christian memoir or something <laughs> like, and that kept turning up instead of this book. Well, that's yes, right, isn't yes, it? Yes, it was extraordinary. So I'd read a review because as you follow me, I follow other people. We're just a bunch of sheep all reading the same book. Um, <laughs> But so I'd, I'd looked on Kindle and I found it and at the cover, I'm not, I'm, I'm not entirely a fool. The cover said tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow by Gabrielle Seven. I hadn't found a different author or anything. The cover was the right cover mm-hmm. and I downloaded it and I started reading and it was this religious advice and Jesus said this and referred to this scripture. And so first I thought, given the person I was following, I knew they would never have recommended to me that I read a religious book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that this was some sort of tool in the writing and that it was going to turn out to be very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read about three chapters <laughs> about what Jesus says I must do before I realized this really cannot be the right book. There, mm-hmm. There is no ways. And then I dug a bit deeper and I found the correct version. <laughs> 
Um, and try to complain to Amazon, but it's very hard to complain to Amazon about anything. <laughs> yeah, well, these days when you search for this book, the correct book comes up instantly because it has become a word of mouth sensation. Absolutely. And apparently it's the latest book on BookTok that's being touted everywhere. It's so popular. And all I can say is because it is that good. Yes. It really is absolutely lovely. It's about two characters, Sam and Sadie. And yes, they both do have kind of fatal flaws that keep them back. <laughs> um, and they meet as children in a children's hospital. Uh, and they both are absolutely crazy about gaming. And as they grow up, they start collaborating and mm. their friendship deepens and they have periods of estrangement and periods of closeness. I haven't finished it yet. Um, I'm dying to get back to it. Uh, there is, I think, nobody in the world who's less interested in gaming than I am. Possibly me. Except possibly you. <laughs> and nevertheless, it is riveting. Yes. I am loving it. Highly recommend. Yes. And, and really don't let the gaming put one off because the gaming is, it's part of the story. But if you're not interested, it, it somehow works. You suddenly become interested in gaming from through their eyes. Yes. Because the, the games are presented as stories. It's kind of narrative. And I was very interested in the stuff about the visuals of gaming. Mm. And that is really, really interesting. You learn a lot about gaming. I felt like I knew a lot about another world after I'd read it. Yes, and a, an interesting world, not something that you're resisting finding out more about. And a world that our children are very deeply entrenched in. Yes, yes, yes. Well, mine are. <laughs> <laughs> Your children read books, mine don't. Oh, well. <laughs> Um, what have you been consuming in the way of narrative this week? So, you know that I struggle with television and I struggle right. to find anything I like, but I have managed to find another series I like and I feel triumphant about it. I'm watching something called The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Oh, yes. Have yes, you yes, seen I it? I have. I have when and it came it, out. It, it ticks my boxes for quirk. You yes. know, I need my TV to be light, easy and quirky. Mm -hmm. And and Kimmy is one of four women who was kept in an underground bunker by a mad um, preacher for 15 Cult years. Leader, yes. Um, and she, they come out of the bunker and now what happens in her life? She moves to New York. She lives in a really dodgy basement flat um, with a big, Gay black um, roommate who is just magnificent. Oh, I love him so much. He's he's fabulous, and it's completely over the top. It's completely quirky, and I'm loving it. Um, so I'm probably going to binge watch that instead of doing anything else <laughs> until I'm finished. I think you'll enjoy it. We have a great guest on today. We are talking to Gus Silber. Gus is a journalist, a reviewer, and a writer. He has written extensively in the healthcare field. He's worked as a music journalist. His uh, special interest is in entrepreneurship. Uh, you know him from books such as The Disruptors 1 and 2, Electric Graffiti, and collections like It Takes Two to Toy Toy, Bryflace of the Vanities, The Naked Pun, and others. Hi, Gus, and welcome to The Hidden Lives of Writers. How has your writing week been? Thank you, Fiona, and thank you, Gail. Um, my writing week is, is, is usually uh, very chaotic. Uh, I tend to do most of my actual work writing on the weekends when there's less distractions, and during the working day, I tend to do most of my actual writing quite late at night, uh, the quiet 
time from about nine o'clock till midnight is when I do most of my writing. But I also write a lot on the move, thanks to digital technology. So if I have a few minutes to spare some when I have my phone with me, which I always do, um, I'll write something uh, on the app that I use and then immediately pick it up when I get back to my desktop at home. So I don't have a kind of regime of sitting down at a computer to write. I find that kind of uh, well, it's it's always quite intimidating the thought that now nah, I have to write. I can write well and quickly under great pressure. The more pressure, the better. But I find that the ability to write on the move actually has become quite a firm habit uh, for me, and um, that's pretty much how my writing week goes: writing bits and pieces here and there, and then writing until late at night, and then and on the weekend doing most of my hard writing work. Gus, this fascinates me because I had imagined that you were a person who wrote all day long <laughs> because your work is writing. Um, you, you don't, you, you know, from what I understand about your work, your work is writing. But now you're telling us you have a whole different day life. What happens in that day life? Well, a lot of the writing I do is writing on commission. So it could be a script for a production company. It could be a speech for someone's keynote. It could be a commissioned book that I'm working on. So it's very, very varied. Um, but a lot of the writing, I mean, I find, you know, writing is a verb. You know, you have to eventually get down and actually do it. But around the act of writing there's all sorts of other acts and a heck of a lot of my writing work uh, is based on research work and I actually enjoy the research work because you know it's, uh, I find that the more research you do the more you can kind of postpone the actual hard <laughs> sweat of writing but when you write on commission you know there's all sorts of other things that come into it so there's briefing and there's discussion and there's notes and the actual writing where you actually do what your job entails takes up a relatively small portion of what you're actually doing it does depend though if i have to write a thousand two thousand three thousand word chapter of course then i'll take you know i'll set aside three days to specifically do that but the kind of writing work one does nowadays is very fragmented it's 750 words yeah 750 words there 300 words here and there so it's very different to the idea of sitting down with a quill in your hand to write for the whole day which is what us fiction writers do absolutely our quills <laughs> are always dipped in ink and ready to go <laughs> Gus you mentioned an app on your phone that you write on do you dictate or what app well the app that I use my main writing app which I really love it's actually a subscription app so I pay for it on, a, on an annual basis and it's pretty expensive actually but it's a brilliant app called Ulysses mm -hmm. and it's uh, specifically Mac only so there's a mobile version and there's a desktop version but it's really it's an it's an app specifically designed for people who write not necessarily writers who, who write fiction and non-fiction books etc but it's just very very good for structuring and ordering your thoughts um, and it's kind of it intuitively feels so much friendlier than Microsoft Word which of course is the default mm. and which after some terrible experiences I just don't like using at all I'm pretty I sure mean. everyone has ever used Word has had those experiences of of entire documents just disappearing into the ether and so on so Ulysses because it's Mac specific and it's very easy to use um, it's my it's my preferred app but in terms of dictation yeah, that's that's become a major revolution I use a brilliant app called Mac Whisper which is part of the whole kind of uh, AI revolution 
And what I do now when I'm out for a walk, let's say with my dog or anywhere else, and I have a sudden kind of uh, thought <laughs> and I want to jot it down, and it can sometimes be a long ramble, I use Mac Whisper, and it's, in my experience, about 99%, if not more, accurate. That's Even, speech to text. Yeah, speech to text. So it's very, very good for interviews, but it's also extremely good for verbal notes. So I take the notes on an app on my phone, get home and transcribe it instantly using Mac Whisper. And then I've got this kind of running ability to uh, not just kind of write on the go, which is, can be sometimes physically difficult, but to take notes on the go and turn those into text. And very often that's how writing comes together from fragments. Mm-hmm. So thought fragments are problematic because thoughts disappear and very, very frustrating. Uh, so if you turn your thoughts into verbal notes and then you turn those verbal notes into text using AI technology, it's a brilliant way for a writer to work. So that's become part of my habit too. Okay. Um, Gus, the internet thinks that you were born in Potchefstroom and went to Florida Park High. Is the internet correct? A rare example of accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that, that is correct. So I'm from the – I grew up in the West Rand and was born in the what's now the Northwest Province. And can you tell us a bit about your very earliest jobs in journalism and how you got into it as a career? Well, I ha- actually had no idea what I wanted to do as a career. And the only thing I was actually – well, two things. I was good at – history and English at school. For the rest of it, I was actually terrible, and I barely actually escaped school um, without being expelled. I was terribly rebellious and uh, always in trouble, and I just kind of hated the school system, the Calvinist education system of the government schools that I went to. Mm. I think my saving grace was having very good English teachers who kind of went above and beyond what their duty was to encourage me to, to write, first of all. And uh, and to enjoy the language. So I came out of school with the ability to write. Um, and I wanted to, I very desperately wanted to somehow enter the world of either TV or movies, uh, which interestingly I have been involved with over the years. But I found just coincidentally a job advert for a journalist on a local newspaper in Krugersdorp. And I thought, hey, journalism, yeah, that's writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went for an interview and uh, I remember to this day the editor His name was Carol Marsh. She was a brilliant editor. She kind of asked me a few questions, and then she said, right, how do you spell accommodation? (laughs) (laughs) And I happened to know. (laughs) I'm not sure I do. I'm spelling it in my head. Middle one and O and A. If she'd asked me to spell occasionally, I would never have got that job. (laughs) I don't think anyone would get the job in that It was a bit of a kind of final test. You've passed the other test. So, So... I loved journalism from the start. I was given a notebook and a pen and a camera that I'd never used before and no instructions whatsoever and sent out to be a journalist. So that was the the start of all. And, and I discovered that journalism involved a huge amount of creative thinking and writing mm. as well as reporting, which mm-hmm. is a much more objective practice. And that's where it began. That was my first job in journalism on the West Rand Times in Krugersdorp covering a large area from Ranfantine to the border of Johannesburg and all sorts of stories. And it's not called the Wild West for nothing. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, every, every day there was a crazy and crazier story to write about. So for a writer, that kind of experience is invaluable because you're, you're working with real people and real stories and real drama and real tragedy and real comedy. So a and the deadlines of, are real. 
the deadlines are absolutely real. That I started off on a weekly newspaper, then moved to the Star, which was a daily newspaper. And back in those days, before digital technology, the deadlines weren't just real, but you had to phone in your story. Mm-hmm. So when you had done your reporting, whatever mm-hmm. it was, and very often way out in the field, no cell phones, you had to find a public phone. And then you had to say, can I have dictate, please? So dictate was the name of the, of the, of the, um, few people who took your stories. And yeah, it was terrifying because you would dictate your story and then you think, I wonder how much of that is going to be accurately <laughs> turned into text. <laughs> It's amazing because you see that in movies. You yeah, see like the war reporters yeah. running to the phone to yes, dictate yes. their stories. Exactly. I didn't realize that even in the West Rand you phoned your stories in. <laughs> I thought that was a war-specific thing that, that happened. Was, that would only be when you were out in the field. So for the rest of the time you would report and you'd get back to your desk and you would bash away on your manual typewriter. But if you were out in the field for any reason, and the field, of course, could just mean you know a half an hour away from your desk, uh, the deadline would be for an afternoon edition. The deadline would be like around about ten, eleven o'clock. So the, the you know the the intense panic to get your story ready to be dictated by that time, and to have it written in rough notes in your notebook, and to be able to read your own handwriting, huge um, uh, um, experience for any writer. Mm. And uh, you know <laughs> that's why t- to this day, when I write, I invariably scroll because I still feel that writing is something. Physical writing is something that you do very fast. Okay. It's not a leisurely activity. So when I take notes, uh, I tend to rush and scroll. I've still got that muscle memory. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> very interesting. Before we get deeper into your writing, just based on what you're telling us now, I want to know what you'd advise a young person wanting to get into journalism, how to go about it now, because I'm always a bit confused. Like, is it a good idea to do a general degree so you know a lot about a lot of things and that can feed your journalism? Or is it a good idea? to just plunge into it, just walk out there and become a journalist. So fortunately, despite the state of the industry in this country in particular, there are still lots of people who are interested in careers in journalism. Uh, One thing I've done over the years is work with young journalism students or young journalism graduates, and, um, and it's good to see that there are still people who are interested in journalism. Uh, Journalism is very often, it's a kind of, fallback for a career for a lot of people so that people are not entirely sure what they want to do and there still is and I don't know why there still is a certain aura of like excitement and maybe even glamour attached to being a journalist <laughs> so there's so there still is that so a lot of people go into uh, a, a BA journalism yes um, or otherwise you can study what is now generically known as media studies and then you come out with a media degree which in theory enables you to enter any field of media but people who specifically want to be journalists would mm-hmm. go to Stellenbosch or Rhodes or they would do a postgraduate degree at uh, at WITS. Um, so my advice to anybody who wants to be a journalist is, like, first of all, don't listen to people who say, don't be a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. It's like, why would you want to be a journalist? You know, the world has changed. There's no newspapers anymore. It's, uh, everything has changed so much. But being a journalist is simply being someone who journals the world around them. That's what it actually means. And that's a huge skill to have. So I know a lot of people who've done the opposite. Some of the best journalists I know are people who did law degrees, medicine degrees, science mm-hmm. degrees, and came out and found themselves frustrated by what they'd been mm-hmm. trained to do, and they'd fallen into journalism because of their special knowledge. 
Mm. So someone does a medicine degree, they come out, they don't want to do the internship to become a doctor, but they have this fantastic knowledge that they've gathered. So they go into journalism, specifically health journalism, and then they discover that they love writing and they love journalism and they become very good journalists with a specific niche Mm. background. So you don't have to specifically study journalism to become a journalist. But the industry has changed to the extent that it's kind of a requirement that you do need a degree of some kind. Okay. Um, a BA degree is still a very good degree for a journalist because BA degrees are general. And you don't hear that sentence often, a BA degree is a very good degree for <laughs> anything. <laughs> it's good because it's general and journalists are generalists. So when you come out of a, of a of a BA degree and you've studied enough um, about about English and about the arts and about and you've learned some degree of critical thinking, and I think critically, you know, a degree encourages you to be curious about the world. Mm-hmm. So it actually doesn't matter what degree you have, but you'll find now that even even the smallest um, uh, local or regional newspapers will specify that they're looking for someone with a degree mm. uh, in order to be even a junior journalist. Now, that's been that's a radical change. Mm. Uh, in my days in journalism, in the old school of journalism, it was enough that you wanted to be a journalist mm. and was enough that you would be able to survive the hard ground of mm. daily or weekly reporting. If you could do that, then you could be a journalist. And in fact... Uh, and this is a very kind of old school, stubborn kind of attitude that still persists. It's kind of almost thought that it's better for you not to have a degree because you're schooled on the streets. <laughs> <laughs> now it's changed. Now the idea is you need a degree, partly because it's very competitive. Yeah. So there's, there's fewer and fewer spaces in journalism, and people prefer uh, graduates. For those spaces, yeah, I imagine also shows that you can stick with something. Yeah. Finishing a degree shows a certain amount of that you don't that, give up, you don't abandon things. That's right, and also the fact that you have a degree kind of implies that you have some competence in structuring words, putting them together into sentences. So you don't have to be a brilliant writer at all to be a journalist, but you do need to know something about the mechanics and the art of writing. So having a degree implies that you've been through that, literally through that school. Um, There was a perception a few years ago that that journalism was a shrinking profession. And you can see why people thought that, because newspapers were closing down, magazines were closing down en masse. But somehow we are consuming more news than ever before. Um, And yes, there are citizen journalists on social media. But do you have that perception? Is journalism a growing or a shrinking profession? Do you have a sense of that? Well, we live in a very paradoxical age. And one of the great paradoxes of the digital age is that traditional professions such as journalism uh, are suffering Mm. because of competition and because of fewer people uh, buying actual physical printed media. But the paradox of that is that more people in than ever before in history are actually writing whether they're writing something on instagram whether they're writing a tweet whether they're writing a blog post whether they're writing part of a whatsapp thread more and more people are actively engaged in the act of transferring their thoughts into text somehow Mm. so there's more and more people who are journaling than ever before in history Mm -hmm. and and there are fewer and fewer actual working journalists. So people who work in journalism, I think it's it's crucial. Um, people who 
I have to also be part of a big part of my advice to anyone wanting to study journalism is not to see it as a single kind of category. So journalism doesn't just mean working for a radio station, a TV station, a newspaper. It also means being able to do your work as a writer, a reporter, and a journalist in multiple media. Mm. And the more you can do that, the better. So a good journalist nowadays is somebody who would be equally at home um, using their smartphone to shoot video mm-hmm. as they would be um, in writing a report on uh, on their computer at home. But I think anyone who decides to be a journalist, almost by definition, is going to be someone who's kind of restless and it doesn't def- see themselves as stuck in or defined by one category. So the best journalists are inherently by nature restless people. Um, and because they're restless, they will have opportunities to work in a huge variety of fields. So traditional journalism jobs are shrinking, uh, especially what happened during the pandemic in South Africa was yeah. a disaster for the profession. Um, and I think it was a bit kind of opportunistic. There were three or four massive newspaper and magazine groups that almost kind of spontaneously decided to shut down their publications, yes. which is a tragedy for the journalists who worked on them. And almost instantly, those journalists had to suddenly become freelancers and uh, and kind of uh, free agents in a world that, had, for them, had shrunk overnight. Yeah. So that's happened a lot. Um, but what that also does mean is more and more opportunities for people to freelance. And if you freelance, you extend your ability as a writer, but it does require you to be quite entrepreneurial. It does require you to kind of work with a lot of risk, you know, along with the security of your job. So it's that paradox of less traditional jobs and yet more opportunities in the field. As you're speaking, I'm thinking one almost has to think of it more as content creation rather than pure journalism. A, a journalist is now a content creator in various different forms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I first came across this term content, I was like, set of like a terrible <laughs> alarm bell in my head. It was like, is everything we're doing now being reduced to the generic content? It's yeah. exactly the same. It's almost like saying the universe is made of stuff. Yes. <laughs> Which it is, but that stuff is discreet. I love the word stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, when we use it all the time, and we talk about our stuff and so on, but all the stuff is, is broke, can be broken down into discrete elements and atomic components and so on. In the same way, I've now, I've now, I now use it myself. I've now kind of grown comfortable with the idea of content because that is what you do. And I think there's two aspects to content. It's a bit of an ambiguous word. You know, uh, you produce content in the hope of keeping people content. So <laughs> you do something that's not just meant to fill a gap and a space. You also need to kind of keep people interested and, and you need to in some way keep them content by keeping them engaged. So I don't mind that term anymore, but absolutely journalists need to think of themselves as people who create content for consumption. And if you think of yourself as that sort of person, then you immediately expand your horizons and you become I've a content I've got one more creator. question coming out of this. Um, you've talked about all the different types of writing there is and the different type, well, let's say it, the different type of content, the different stuff. Um, how, how do you, when you get an initial idea, how do you, first of all, know if it's got legs or not because you know we talk about this in fiction a lot we have lots of ideas how do you decide which one will become a novel how do you decide which idea is going to have legs as a as a non-fiction piece as a journalist piece and how do you 
decide what type of pieces it's going to be. So you you do movies, you do books, mm. you do columns, you do. How do you decide when you have an idea which one of those it's going to be? Yeah. So look, I think you know your or your training as a journalist. You know, over and over you hear that. It's not good enough to simply come up with an idea for something. An idea has to be refined into an angle. And then the angle has to be refined into its elements of interest. And, uh, and w- this is a crucial kind of aspect of being a journalist is the ability to see angles in ideas. So ideas on their own actually are worth nothing really because ideas kind of float freely in the atmosphere and you can pluck them out and and you can do something with them or they can just kind of pass you by. But if you can have an idea that you can, you can see an angle in, then immediately you've got a possibility of turning that angle into content. <laughs> so I think that's I think that's crucial and that instinct very much stays with me. And a lot of it a lot of what I do is purely observational. So, for instance, uh, something as simple as driving around our city at the moment. I mean, there are numerous things happening in our wild and crazy and fast-changing city. And every now and again, you'll see something, just an observation, sometimes just a side glance or glance in your rearview mirror. It will make you think about the bigger picture. And then in that bigger picture, you'll see an angle to write about for me, what's important, and it also comes back to my journalistic training, is it's not just good enough to have ideas that become angles. Those angles also have to become stories. And stories essentially are discrete elements that revolve around human beings. If they don't revolve around humans, they aren't stories. So that's, I think, the, a key thing that I learned from journalism. It's not just here's the angle, it's who are the humans in the angle? And how do they react and how do they act and what are their emotions and what's their experiences so that's really how it works it's a it's not a process that you break down in your mind it's almost an instantaneous process so you see something Mm -hmm. and you think this could be a story Uh, and once you have that story it's very hard to let go of it and what you have to do is kind of uh, put it down somewhere where it can it can move people I think that's key so for me, uh, a story only becomes a story when in some way it can move people. Um, and I don't just move, mean move in the emotional sense, that's crucial, but move people to thinking, move people maybe even to action. That can sometimes be your objective as a writer specifically to do that. Gus, uh, I think you probably don't remember this, but I've been thinking about the first time we met. This was in the late 90s when I was freelancing for Style magazine. And I had written a story about the proliferation of private campuses in South Africa, like Midrand Campus, um, that were sort of offering these extremely fast and easy degrees. Um, And I'd had the experience of working on a campus like that, and I wanted to write about it for style. And I I had drafted my story, and the editor at the time, Marilyn Hutting, liked the idea but didn't like the way I had executed it and she asked you to read it and to give me some pointers on how to bring it to life and the advice you gave has always stuck with me and I found it very useful. Um, You told me that I need to put myself into the story. You said show us the story through your eyes, show us you kind of sitting in those classrooms, seeing what you're experiencing, show us what's happening through your your 
perspective. Um, and it, it was so, so interesting. And I've noticed in your writing that you do put yourself into your nonfiction. Is that something that you were taught to do or something that you do consciously? Yeah. Oh, well, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, because very often, you know, um, being asked to help someone with their story is like it's a it's like a bit of a chore, and you sort of worry that you're kind of actually destroying their story by giving them wrong advice. I'm glad that kind of worked for you. Just great advice. Yeah. So you mentioned Marilyn, who's an absolutely brilliant editor, and I think she overturned a few ideas in my head. And one of the ideas was, and a very kind of rigorous principle of newspaper journalism is don't put yourself in the story. Yes, that's you what I've been taught. You are not the story. Yes. Yeah. To the extent that, uh, and you still see this habit today, uh, journalists who need to somehow put themselves into the story will say, this reporter. They won't even use the personal mm-hmm. pronoun because there is such a kind of reaction against it. So thankfully that is changing. But I remember when I worked for Style, it was incredibly liberating because Marilyn didn't just allow us to do that. She actively encouraged it. Um, and that's what was known at the time as the new journalism. So the new journalism was a school of journalism, kind of um, Hunter Thompson, Tom Wolfe, Tom Wolf, uh, yes. a lot of writers who who um, wrote in a very different way for magazines, put themselves hugely into the story, not as the main character, but as a character in the story who observed and who had conversations and the story would revolve around them. So the idea that you could go out as I (laughs) rather than as a kind of unseen narrator was quite revolutionary. And I still think it's a very good way to tell a story is to use yourself as the axis around which the story turns. Um, It is something that you have to exercise a lot of care and skill in doing because as soon as you cross a line, the story does become about you. And it can be a lot less interesting to the reader what you're thinking, what you're doing, than what the people around you are doing. But the idea of, especially if in some way you're an active participant in the story. Mm-hmm. So the idea of being a neutral, aloof, outside observer uh, works for certain kinds of reporting. But um, if you are part of the story, and it doesn't matter what the story is, and you know, if you're a war correspondent, let's say, and you're uh, in Ukraine, phoning your, your story, <laughs> <laughs> you're living your story, and you know, shells are exploding around you. There's no reason why you shouldn't kind of use mm. that situation to bring your story to life. Then what you're doing is you're effectively um, mixing different styles of writing. You're becoming quite novelistic. Yeah. And journalisting. That's what the new journalism was. The new journalist basically said, what we're doing here is really old fashioned and quite dull, actually. Um, why, why shouldn't we think and write like novelists? Um, and write about facts and real stories and real people, but bring a novelistic sense to it. So that's not new, actually. That goes back a long way to kind of early 19th century French and Russian writers who, who did that. But the fact that it was done in mainstream journalism was revolutionary. Even though the new journalism is no longer new, that's back to the 70s, it still can kind of jolt you in a good way when you read a story where the writer doesn't hide under the guise of their objective reality. They become an active part of the story. And the great thing about doing that is that you draw the reader along with you. You're actually saying to them, come with me on this journey and I'll be your guide. So that's the difference. But 
it's very instinctive. Sometimes you actually want to completely withdraw from a story. Mm. Sometimes your presence in the story will actually compromise the integrity of the story, and you'll actually get in the way physically, almost mm. as you, as mm. almost like in the real world. You'll you know you'll be in someone's way, mm. so it's instinctive. If you belong in the story, then you should be there. If you feel that you should pull back, then you should pull back. Sometimes it's really good to consider your pronouns in the story. Am I I or am I just a distant third person observer? And uh, once you figure that out as well, uh, and it's it's instinctive. You figure it out before you do the story. You sit down and do the story, and then maybe halfway through you think this is wrong. It's exactly the same decision you make instinctively as to what tense you use in mm. your storytelling. Uh, I didn't make that decision <laughs> distinct, instinctively at all. Our tenses are my worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in, in journalism, the kind of favorite tense often is what's called the historical present tense. So you write in the past tense as if something is happening now, mm-hmm. which creates a sense of drama and action and tension. But then sometimes the past tense can work very well because it feels more novelistic. So a great example of that kind of storytelling is Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, which is a journalistic story told novelistically, uh, and he used the past tense there. And he doesn't really weave himself into the story as much as he, he does in other books of his. And he tells it he tells it in the third person. And the entire book was sparked by a three-paragraph story that he read in the New York Times. So mm. that's a good example of mm. an idea that became an angle that mm. became a story. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Fiona, I know you're dying to talk about poo. About? Poo. I'm not letting you get away with not asking that question. Okay. Um, so there was a sort of explosive story recently um, in the news about a German ballet choreographer who took exception to a review that had been written of his work by a woman who apparently had criticized him in the past. And he confronted her in some kind of concert setting, I believe, and claims that he coincidentally had a bag of dog feces (laughs) with him um, (laughs) from having walked his dog or whatever. But he walked up to her and he smeared the feces in her face and at first tried to pretend that it was an accident or it wasn't intentional or that it was understandable because she had been so critical of his work. And then he said... I'm just, okay, it was wrong, I shouldn't have done it, it was terrible, but I'm just trying to open a conversation about reviewing. And the perception was that he, as somebody who'd done this thing, had lost the right to start that conversation. But now we haven't smeared feces in anyone's faces, so we can have that conversation about reviewing and being a reviewer. Um, Gail, I believe that you haven't really had terrible reviews of your work. I've been very, very lucky. I've never had an awful mainstream review. I've obviously had a few weird Amazon and Goodreads reviews. Um, yes, as but those I think are easier to dismiss and go, this person's crazy, especially if they're reviewing a completely different book. Um, <laughs> or if they say the book never arrived one yeah. star and I then know it's not my fault. Um, but yeah, I have, I have been very lucky. I've never wanted to smear feces on anybody for that reason. <laughs> well, I've had a few real stinkers, pun intended, um, where the Guardian of London wrote, 
a very unpleasant review of one of my books. Um, Business Day has done me wrong. <laughs> um, and yeah, there've been a few that I really felt misunderstood. I felt as though it was unfair. I felt as yeah. though I would love to just sit down with the reviewer and kind of try to explain myself mm -hmm. or ask yeah. them to explain themselves. Um, but what do you think of this idea that there is something wrong in the state of reviewing and that this is a conversation that needs to be had. Um, is it a conversation or do the content creators, the people who are being reviewed, have no place in that discussion? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a very important topic. First of all, there are not many formal reviewers in this country anymore at all. True. There are influencers, and I think anyone who reviews anything is potentially and ultimately an influencer, no matter how little or how great they, their influence may be. But, um, uh, to this day, you know, often when I'm in public, I sometimes have this kind of feeling in the back of my head as in, I hope I don't meet someone from the 1980s who I gave a bad review to. <laughs> and I actually had this experience for real. It was like really weird. I was commissioned to do a story on AI, which is one of my pet subjects. So I found an expert by the name of Professor Brian Armstrong, which is a kind of generic name. So I emailed him and I arranged to, to go and see him at the Wits Business School. And his name didn't ring a bell to me at all. And I yeah. walk in and he immediately says, do you remember me? Oh, God. Say, <laughs> Professor Armstrong. And he says, I'm Brian Armstrong. I used to play the guitar for Dog Detachment. <laughs> and Dog Detachment were a punk band of the 80s. And I was the music review on the Sunday Times. And I remember I gave him a scathing review. <laughs> and I said, oh, no. But he was extremely gracious about it. And it actually kicked off our, our interview on a sort of fun note because now he's still playing music or you know except he'd never forgotten it yeah he'd <laughs> never forgotten it i had kind of forgotten exactly what i'd said but as a young reviewer and i was the music reviewer and the tv reviewer on the sunday times i always found it much much easier and more enjoyable to tear things apart yes than to kind of uh, write about a masterpiece yeah, I would occasionally find something that was like so fantastic, uh, specifically um, uh, a, a musical album that was kind of almost life-changing, and then I'd struggle to find a way to justify its brilliance. It's much easier to tear things apart. And sometimes, you know, you actually, in retrospect, I remember I used to loathe the group Duran Duran in the 1980s, and over time, as I've mellowed, I now see them as like real masters of their craft. So if someone would, were to say to me, Wow, why were you so nasty to Duran Duran? <laughs> I said, no, I actually love them. <laughs> so, so I think reviewing needs to be taken seriously on one level. On the other level, reviewers are, they show people. They quite literally have an audience that they need to kind of pander to. And it's a lot easier. Um, I mean, Roger Ebert, the world's greatest ever film reviewer, he, uh, he produced a compendium of his, um, Worst reviews, his one-star reviews called I Hated, Hated, Hated This Movie. Mm. And he's a brilliant reviewer, but his, his hated um, reviews were always much better mm. than his This Is A Brilliant Movie four-star reviews. So if you have a bad review, and I've also had a fair share of those as a, as a writer, um, you know, you should actually also look at it as a form of performance art. Mm -hmm. I think if a terrible review in some way kind of moves you, not as far as the guy with the bag of dog feces, <laughs> but moves you to kind of think about uh, what you've written, 
But also think about this whole business of reviewing. Uh, it certainly kind of exposes the vulnerability that you put yourself in when you mm. release anything in public, mm. especially and especially in the social media age. But I remember interviewing an, an, um, an actress once by the name of Andre Hotting, and she was uh, on the stage at the time. And I asked her about her reviews, because she'd come in for some real criticism for a show that she was in. And she just said, you know, darling, you know, I always think you must measure your reviews, not judge them. <laughs> okay, I thought, oh, cool. So she's kind of great. clipping out her reviews. Yeah. And I got 10 reviews for this and so on. So, yeah, bad reviews can really, really... Um, affect people to the extent that they can actually make them think of and sometimes even force them to switch careers. But more often than that, I, I think you Professor should... Armstrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he became a professor of artificial intelligence rather than a punk guitarist. Yeah. In retrospect, of course, you know, I kind of quite enjoy that 80s style. <laughs> so in effect, you, you also kind of do it because you kind of feel an opportunity to say something as a, a reviewer. Uh, and you do it for effect. And I'm thinking it's going back to what you said about angles. Fiona, I think maybe that was just the angle that Guardian reviewer chose that day. <laughs> and they thought they would get more, which I think they did, get more interest and traction on their article if they said something critical than if they said something nice. Yeah. And actually, they really loved the book because who wouldn't? <laughs> well, look, you know, there's an incredible amount of pressure on anyone who writes in the digital era and anyone who reviews, and that's the pressure of metrics. Mm, so, you've got to get eyes on it. Yeah, mm. you know, a two-and-a-half, three-and-a-half star, four-star review will get less traction than a one-star review. Mm. So when I read The Guardian as well, which is one of my kind of favorite publications, I'm always drawn to the one-star reviews. Mm. I'll... I'll some I'll see the four star reviews, but I often won't read them. It's like it sticks in my mind as mm. must see or must listen to. Yes. But if I see if I a one star review, I will read it. Yes. And very often you can see the reviewer having fun with this. You can see them like on a stage. They're like they're like declaiming. They're on a soapbox, which is not what they are when they're doing the the four star reviews. So if you see it, if you see reviewing itself as a form of performance art. I think it becomes easier to to deal with, uh, and also you need to ask yourself wh- how how has this reviewer understood whatever the the work is. If it's clear to you that they've completely misunderstood, then the fault is very often in their stars. You know, mm-hmm. uh, if they've engaged critically with the work, then I think their review can be respected. So that's like you know mm-hmm. an academic who kind of um, critically analyzes and reviews something, you can kind of respect that they've done the research and that they've done the work. The job of a reviewer on a popular publication or in social media is far removed from that. They're actually entertainers, really. They're meant to entertain you. So um, a bad review should actually be a good review in the sense that maybe it'll make you laugh, maybe it'll make you think, maybe, and he has a big hope, it'll make you argue. So you can say, well, I think you're crazy. I think this was a, one of the best books that I've ever read. And I think one thing that's changed hugely is that reviewing has become a, a task of aggregation. Mm-hmm. So you're very often, and I'm guilty of this, and I'm sure everybody else is, you base your decision on whether or not to, let's say, watch a Netflix series on the Rotten Tomatoes mm-hmm. score. Mm-hmm. And you'll say, well, it's only gets 89. You know, it's not like this one gets 92. Mm-hmm. So, it's taken away a lot of our engagement with critics. 
And it's frustrating for them as well because they get reduced to a fragment of a percentage. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's not a lost art. It's a bit of a dying art. When I see someone review something on Facebook or uh, on social media, I kind of feel grateful that they've taken the trouble to do that. There's lazy reviewing where someone clearly hasn't engaged with the work and there's detailed reviewing which shows a level of passion that you have to admire whether the review is positive or negative um, and when I see examples of those I think you know wow someone's actually taken the trouble to mm. not just sit and kind of get involved with this work but to tell the world about it from their perspective. We had a problem in South Africa for a while where everybody was being far too nice about South African yes. books particularly South African fiction. I think, I think the we problem were, is ongoing. <laughs> we were so delighted to have this proliferation of South African novels appearing. Yeah. And we. Uh, the other problem was that authors were being asked to review other authors' yes. books. Mm. Um, and then there was quite likely to be a reciprocation. Yeah. And in that kind of situation, it really stifles criticism. Yeah, right. Nobody that, wants yeah. to be the bad guy. I'm going to be honest. I will not give a bad review. So if I'm asked to read something, I will either give a good review or I will remain silent yeah. because I know how hard the work of writing is. And yes. I'm yeah. not prepared to tear apart a yeah. colleague, essentially, who who has who has gone through that work of writing. Yeah. So so when I'm asked to review, I say, well, I'm prepared to look at it, but if I don't like it, I won't say anything. And it's a problem because actually we should be saying, yeah. we should be calling out the bad writing. Yeah, yeah we should be. But uh, I get the feeling there's been a bit of a change recently that uh, magazines and websites and newspapers are getting – kind of freelance reviewers mm. to do the reviewing yes. and those people seem to me to be far more fearless and yeah. more willing to be critical um, and also the sort of uh, civilian reviewers on yeah. Facebook uh, for example in the good book appreciation society where they don't have a sense that the author's looking over their shoulder and they just are completely candid in their yeah. opinions. And then people will join in in the comments section, hated it, loved it, hated it for these reasons. Yeah. Oh, no, you're crazy. I loved it, etc. And there'll be a kind of wholesome debate about it. Yeah. Uh, I, th I think that's probably a, a good development. Yeah. Look, I think there's a, a few sins of reviewing. <laughs> For me, one of the biggest ones is when somebody says, you will love this if you're a fan of detective fiction, or if you enjoy South African historical novels, you should read this. That's a complete cop-out, okay. because what it does is it kind of it takes the re reviewer's responsibility to judge that book on its own merits away, and it simply kind of places it like on a shelf in a bookstore. Um, I think there's a bit of a misperception that reviewing needs to only be about the book. In fact, you can often do a very good review by placing the book in its context. Mm -hmm. So you can talk about the book, but there's often no need to delve into the technicalities. You can kind of assume that, you know, the writing is competent and if it's brilliant, you can say that. But what you should also be doing, I think, is reviewing the times and the society uh, in which the book is written. So you can do a book review that is inspired by the book, but that actually barely mentions the book. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you need to do a surgical analysis of someone's book. And another 
great sin of reviewing, particularly of fiction, is where somebody kind of feels compelled to tell the story. Oh God, I can't bear it. And then, and then they they simply echo parts of the story, and then at the end they say, yes. "If you like this, yeah." <laughs> Those books, I think. I don't think they are of much value. They are obviously of value to the writer because it's great to be reviewed. But if you can look at a novel and place it in its historical and social and political context, I think you're doing the writer a huge favor. And you also are stirring the imaginations of readers so that they're not just seeing this as a book in a a vacuum. I think the reviewer's job should be to to go beyond just telling us what the book is about mm. and how the book is written. Um, it should give us a sense of why the book is important. I think that's kind of uh, something that are… Or not important. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but but absolutely, uh, you know, it's very difficult to review someone's work. Mm. And it's particularly difficult when you also happen to work in that field. Uh, but it's also possible to… And I, you know, I'm, I don't like the term, but it's possible to be constructive in the way you review. The problem I have with constructive criticism is it's very often used in a very condescending way. Yes. It's like, well, if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't <laughs> say it. Yeah. And constructive criticism, it kind of takes you back to the classroom, doesn't it? It's like, you know, you could have done this better and not yeah. a bad effort, but so uh, rather engage with the text, critically analyze it. Think about what it means and see the writer as a voice rather than just someone who's writing. Those kind of reviews are rare, but I think where you come across them, and on the opposite end of the scale is people who've completely and obsessively fallen in love with the work. Mm. Then their writing is like an ode and it's like mm. a sort of a, it's like a love letter. Mm. I, I, I really like those kind of reviews because it means that you've stirred someone's passions and they feel the need to evangelize about it. Mm. It's quite a skill to do it in a way that doesn't come across as gushing. Though. I want to ask about humor. I want to, you are very funny. Um, and I want to ask how writing funny pieces, being humorous has changed over the years. Yeah. Um, and because I'm, I'm finding it in my very small way, quite a challenge to to be funny in this very work society we're in. Um, and I want to know what your experience of that has been. Yeah. Well thank you, Gail. I think um I think, you know, humor is often misperceived as jokes and telling funny stories. It it's much more sophisticated and it's much deeper than that. Humor lies in really the ability it begins with the ability to see the absurdity of mm. situations and it begins with the ability to, to, to see juxtapositions. So we live in one of the most conflicted societies in the world where, mm. where everything is juxtaposed for better or worse against everything else mm. and where every day brings a fresh kind of avalanche of absurdities mm. and where you just kind of, you know, the more you read, the more your mind just boggles at what kind of society we live in. So you can do two things about that. You can either fall into an absolute pit of despair about it, and it's hard not to do that, or you can see it as material. <laughs> so uh, cartoonists and satirists and uh, writers in general, and I think the the key to it is not setting out to be funny, but setting out to capture the absurdity in a way that makes people think and reflect 
about the absurdity of the society we live in. So satire is a bit of a dying art, unfortunately, in this country, not just because of shifting social attitudes towards what can and what shouldn't be said, but also because it's incredibly hard for satirists to compete against the everyday reality of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the current acting CEO of ESCOM, for instance, the other day was quoted on News24 as saying, why can't South Africans be grateful for level two and three load shedding? <laughs> Instead, they just complain about level seven and eight. You know, so, so, what can you do with that? You, yeah, yeah, it's it's beyond the jokes. Right yeah. themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So a satirist would struggle to come up with something to equal that level of absurdity. So. In effect, and Peter Duck Ace always used to say that the government, the National Party government of the day, were his scriptwriters. Yeah. He would simply see what they were saying and he would turn it into a line in uh, a review or a show. But humor is all around us. And in fact, humor in South Africa is a key survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. In fact, Absolutely. I think it's one of the, our strongest uh, traits as a nation is that we're able to look at things and take one step backwards. So there are absurdities that can become material. It's all also observational. So a writer who observes and sometimes just reports their observations mm. can sometimes be very funny just because they're noticing things that other people haven't noticed. So that's a key skill for any kind of writing, but particularly for humorous writing. And the key is not to kind of set out to be humorous because mm, yes. then you do run the risk of not telling a string of jokes, but rather to begin with an observation that makes you think and makes you in some way laugh. And of course, there's an extremely thin line between kind of humor and tragedy, hence the two mm. comic mask, comedy and tragedy. Um, but South Africans, I think, by and large, deal with our situations by taking a step back and by seeing the humor and the absurdity of it. And we're, we're actually, we're drowning in this material. Hmm. Um, and sometimes if you just kind of put your pen to paper, your things on the keyboard and you report on it, it's inherently funny. You don't even really need to try. Um, there's wit, there's humor, there's absurdity. There's all the things that make up comedy inherent in our society. And this is what good stand-up comedians also do. Stand-up comedians are philosophers. They don't tell hmm. jokes. The good ones don't tell jokes. They'll simply report on what they've hmm. seen. And, the humor lies in the chord that they struck with the audience. Mm. So they've experienced that and they've seen it, but they haven't seen the humor in it until it's pointed out on the stage or the page. Yeah. Gus, you mentioned earlier that AI is one of your passions. Yeah. And um, I think that we as creatives never anticipated that we would go the way of the typewriter and the horse and carriage, that our skills would be under threat one day and that yeah. there would be the possibility of us becoming obsolete. And the new um, AI software, chat, GPT, and now the new GPT-4, um, it, it's certainly presenting a challenge. Um, it's not at all clear to me that we have been turned into typewriters yet. But um, there's been a very emotional response to these developments from people like me, people who uh, were making a living as artists or graphic designers or people who were making a living as writers or content creators, uh, perhaps particularly people who were 
writing in a genre that they were self-publishing and were writing to brief in a way or, or writing to a kind of trope or formula. And now the idea that there's a machine that can do it as well or better or a machine that you can just sort of plug certain prompts into and it will spew out the content that you can then use to great effect. Um, it's, it's produced a very probably irrational and emotional response where people are screaming at other people for seeing interest or merit in this. Mm. Um, there was uh, early on, there was a man who produced a children's book on Twitter and designed a cover for it and then put it on Twitter and said, look, this is so interesting. The AI has done this correctly, but it's given her six fingers. Her hands look a bit weird. The AI isn't good at hands, but how interesting is this? And people went absolutely insane. Uh, there was a South African writer of my acquaintance who hoped that he would die in a chemical fire and expressed <laughs> that wish publicly, which to me was quite wow. shocking. Wow. Um, and people yeah. were screaming at him, look at the hands, the hands are yeah. wrong. And he had pointed the hands out yeah. himself, yeah. you know. He said, this is interesting, not, yeah. you know, I'm coming for your wife <laughs> I'm coming for your hands. <laughs> yeah. um, so what is your response to all this? Because I think it might be slightly more informed and rational than <laughs> the rest of us. Well, my response actually to AI and ChatGPT is the same response I had when I discovered the Beatles at the age of six. <laughs> it was like the heavens had opened and there was this massive feeling of like things changing and a, a sense of wonder and joy. Mm -hmm. And I had that same feeling when the internet arrived here. Right. I had that same feeling when social media started taking off here. It was an actual feeling that you're living through fast-changing mm. times. And it's on the one hand, for me, it's like kind of a sense of wonder. And, of course, at the back of that, there is a sense of awe. So the word awe is also kind of associated mm. with fear, obviously, yes. which is where the word awful comes from. But um, to me, it's incredibly exciting that we live in the 21st century in an age where the idea of intelligent machines is actually becoming real. Prior to this, the idea has only ever been dystopian. Right. So science fiction movies are always about AI technologies that start out as helpful to humanity, mm. and then they become malevolent and they turn on their creators. And of course, and I remember discussing this with you, Fiona, at the launch of your um, book, Spire. Uh, you know, Frankenstein is the first book that kind of delved into uh, um, a monstrous creation turning on its creator. We're now living through a Frankenstein moment. Right. So there's a lot of awe around it, and the awe comes from sort of jaw-dropping um, uh, sense of watching ChatGPT respond to your prompt mm. instantly mm. with no thought involved. Um, uh, and the kind of fear comes from, well, if this machine can do that, what role is there for me? I think it's a temporary thing. And I think, as with all disruptive technologies, uh, we'll very quickly get used to it. And also, we'll develop an instinct, which I think people are already developing, as in, is this AI generated? Yes. So, if you see a work of art, and, and I, I, I instantly, that's a, there's even a term for it, it's the uncanny valley, where something looks human, but it's not quite human. So, this is why we have this uh, kind of primal reaction to robots. Because mm. they don't, the robots that are, have been developed with humanoid sort of features, 
They don't feel like mm. human, and yet they look human. So you see art produced by AI. It's actually too good. It lacks flaws and, and imperfections. It immediately looks like AI. And as soon as I see that art, the first thing that goes through my mind, aside from, well, this is a good example of AI art, is actually this is terrible art. Yeah, mm. I would rather look at bad art than at good AI art. So that's mm. my reaction to I'm awed by it, at the ease of it, and I enjoy playing around with it, but I don't see it as art in the human sense. It's art in the machine sense. It's quite similar with writing. So um, ChatGPT is very good at producing content that is syntactically um, competent, mm. that is well-structured, that it can deliver an argument, but it's completely lacking in nuance and wit and, to use the human word, soul and empathy. That's the current state of AI. But if you tell ChatGPT to write something humorous, its humor is terrible and contrived and forced. Yeah, you're never going to mistake it for anything real. So we're in this novelty phase of an infatuation with this technology, but we're using it too much for the novelty side of it. Mm. I think it has very, very practical applications that can make the world a much better place in healthcare, in agriculture, in education. In Africa as a whole, AI can be huge. So we're in this kind of stage where we're fearing and kind of um, uh, obsessing over this technology because of what it can do on a sort of fairly superficial level. Um, but also my argument against it, and I'm quite a utopian when it comes to technology. I always look at the positive benefits of it. But my argument really is we still have vinyl records. Mm. We still mm. have physical libraries. We still have printed newspapers. Disruptive technologies don't erase old technologies completely. They simply make us re-look at them. And in fact, vinyl records now sell more than mm. CDs. Uh, and what I find very kind of motivational in this sense, my uh, youngest daughter who's doing a master's in English literature uh, is absolutely opposed to e-books. She will never read an e-book. Mm. She wants physical books in her hand, and she spends a lot of her hard-earned money on physical books, and she's a millennial generation. Mm. So that tells me that, that there will be a reaction against AI, mm. and the reaction will partly be a longing for a return to the pre-AI days. But people who fear for their jobs, on one level, they have a reason. For instance, proofreaders, transcribers, um, uh, certainly their jobs uh, are going to become more and more uh, under threat. At the same time, people who write for a living can use ChatGPT as a very powerful tool, not so much for writing, but for ideation. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. Give me 10 ideas for, I mean, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And you take those ideas and you expand them and you, and you use them. Um, but we'll look back, I think, you know, in five, 10 years time, we'll look back on this as a very weird period of technological progress and disruption. And we'll actually say to ourselves, why were we so scared of ChatGPT? <laughs> Y2K comes yeah. to mind. The fear at the turn of the century that everything would shut down. I mean, yeah. it's the same yeah. exactly. rational reaction exactly. to technology. The exact same arguments against ChatGPT now are the arguments I heard when I was in high school and there was debate over whether um, students should be allowed to use calculators. 
right. the classroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because using yeah, a calculator would deprive you of the knowledge of doing long division. Yeah. Um, and where would we be without knowing how to do long division? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The same argument when Wikipedia came out. Yes. Academics in particular, universities forbade students from referencing Wikipedia. They still do. They yeah. still do. However, Everybody in academia uses Wikipedia mm -hmm. and uses their referencing as a guide to further study. So we are worried by new technologies, mm -hmm. by revolutionary technologies like a crowdsourced encyclopedia, like uh, a machine that can kind of uh, replicate the way humans think and write. At the same time, right now, we still are the superior species because we as humans invented this technology. So it's yet to happen, and maybe it will um, happen that AI becomes sentient and kind of makes us as a species redundant. That's the dystopian mm. view. The utopian view is that we embrace this technology, we use it to um, eliminate some of the drudgery in our lives, mm. and we use it creatively. ChatGPT uh, is a very good tool for creative thinking. So I think people who are worried about their jobs being replaced are in any sense, in to begin with, insecure. And everyone who writes for a living or creates for a living is inherently insecure. We are kind of worried about how we perceived, about how we reviewed. We are worried where, whether we're good enough. Mm -hmm. Are we kind of uh, interesting and relevant enough? So we have all these fears and insecurities to begin with. And then along comes a machine which has absolutely no lack of confidence <laughs> and no ego. Mm. Uh, and that kind of really worries us because it's the exact opposite of what we are as creative people. So the key, I think, is to cross that kind of emotional bridge and see this as a technology that can be of, of help. I love that attitude. I'm feeling <laughs> very inspired. Gus, I'm curious, listening to you speak and listening to how you talk about creativity, etc., are we going to see a novel at any point come out of Gus Silber? <laughs> well, you know, as a journalist by background, I've always thought that real life and the real world is inherently and dynamically so much interesting than anything anybody could ever come up with. I do enjoy fiction very much. I particularly enjoy kind of apocalyptic fiction, the last really good book of fiction that I read was a book called The Cabin at the End of the World which has become a movie, A Knock on the Cabin about about uh, fundamentalist ac apocalyptic thinkers who come to a small isolated cabin and and uh, say that the world is ending and that the three people in this cabin need to do terrible things to stop the world from ending. I like that kind of fiction which is greatly removed from real life. I mean the last time I, I wrote anything that could be called fiction was really back in high school when I had the freedom to write so-called essays and I would write uh, novelistically. I would love to write a novel one day and I hugely admire anyone who can write fiction because of their ability to conjure up characters who come to life on the page and who have histories and who have emotions and who involve you and who feel real. So that is not something I've ever tried to do. I would really struggle to do it because I would fall back always on real people. And I know fiction writing often does that. But I would often feel that my fiction writing would struggle to be as interesting as a real person who I bumped into in the street and told their story. So if I was ever to do it, um, I think it would spring from what I know about real people and real lives. And I would love to one day write 
a South African novel just because our society lends itself so well to reflections on absurdity and chaos and conflict and turmoil and tragedy and so on. Um, but I would really battle, I think, to fictionalize what I may as well sort of turn mm. into a documentary. But that's one of the reasons why when I pick up a book of fiction and it transports me, um, I just admire the writer's ability to do that, the skill uh, and the suspension of disbelief and so on. So it's something I haven't attempted for a long time. I'm maybe on the back burner, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I would love to one day. Fabulous. Mm. And what have you been consuming in terms of narrative this week? What have you been reading or listening to or watching that captured your attention? Yeah, I've got this kind of tradition when we go away to the bush. So we went to the Kruger Park uh, a week ago and, you know, your phone, you don't have signal and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, very little opportunity to consume content. So I always take a book or books with me. And I took a book that caught my eye by an author called Catherine May. Uh, a UK writer who wrote a book called Enchantment. And the subtitle is A Quest for Wonder in an Anxious Age. And that's what kind of hooked me onto it. And it's a work of nonfiction. It's a work of kind of memoir and reflection. Uh, it's about struggling to reset in the post-pandemic age. And she's a brilliant writer. And she writes, it wasn't what I expected to be at all. I thought it would be a kind of self-help guide to finding enchantment in your life. And it's not really about that, but at the same time, it does inspire you to do that. She describes, and she's a, a very good writer, she describes the feeling she went through after lockdown. She actually quite enjoyed lockdown. Uh, when lockdown came to an end and she had to go back into the real world, she felt herself completely her battery had expired. She described mm. herself as an electric toothbrush that had run out of battery. Mm. And she found it very difficult as a mother dealing with her mm. child in this new era. She lost her interest in reading and writing mm. almost altogether. And she felt driven to rediscover enchantment. And it begins with small things and then turns into bigger things. And she's a brilliant writer. And she's the kind of writer that every now and again, I'd reread a sentence of hers and just marvel at. She uses words like numinous and liminal and starfall and ethereal and uh, this beautiful word. So in her quest for enchantment, she uses words that actually find this enchantment. And I read it like, you know, in two or three days in, in the bush, which is very quick for me. I normally spend ages reading books. Um, her command of language, her ability to conjure up images and also her whole quest from a kind of loss of energy and enthusiasm after the pandemic into finding redemption through enchantment. So mm-hmm. it's got a kind of spiritual thread that got, that went through. Another reason why I picked up the book was because it had a shout from Anne Lamott on the cover. Mm-hmm. I love Anne Lamott's work. Mm-hmm. I particularly like the way she writes about spirituality and faith yes. uh, in a kind of contemporary sense. So this book has got threads of that. It's not a religious book in, by any means, but it's about kind of trying to find something that makes sense in a senseless age. And that book, of all the books I've read this year, just kind of, it stayed with me uh, to the extent that I you know, took notes while reading it. <laughs> yeah, so that's, and also it was an opportunity to, to move away from passive engagement with Netflix series and movies, which is what I otherwise kind of do and which can become quite obsessive. So reading a book, actively engaging with the author, becoming part of her life, feeling the same thing she feels. And I just love the sense of reconnecting with enchantment because that's like Mm. a sense that you lose early in childhood 
when you become used to things. Mm-hmm. And that's why, as I said earlier, that's why I find AI and chat GPT so amazing because it's like wonder. Brings wonder back into what are, are otherwise our kind of routine, mundane lives. So technology is wondrous. And that's part of the reason why I love it so much. But that book in particular, I'd recommend to anybody who wants to connect. I think that's so interesting because the thing that has struck me in everything you've said is how you seem to be a person who keeps your sense of wonder about things, that you have a sense of wonder about the everyday, you have a sense of wonder about new technology. So it's very interesting for me that it resonated so much with you. An yeah. excellent, inspiring choice. Yeah, well, I mean, talking about reviews, I mean, you know, I wrote an essay once, a very pretentious teenage essay in, in my school days, and uh, uh, my teacher put a, a line on the side saying, uh, you're a positive cynic. <laughs> I didn't even know what cynic, I didn't even know what cynic meant. I had to look it up. But I think positive cynicism is a good way to look at the world. And that's kind of my view. On one level, I'm incredibly cynical. On one level, I'm sort of, I have a strong streak of like, you know, just general misanthropy. Mm. That the human race is terrible and we do terrible things. And then again, I'll see something and very often it's like a single work of art or piece of technology or a gadget or an app that kind of reawakens a sense of wonder. It's a childlike wonder. It's a childhood wonder that makes you reconnect with that energy you had when you were like four years old. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So absolutely, I think to lose that wonder would be terrible. Uh, and it's associated with awe and with fear. There's no wonder isn't just like, wow. It's always a sense of like, what does this mean? And it can be actually quite frightening. Mm. It's like seeing an incredible thing in nature. It's like seeing the Victoria Falls for the first time or the Grand Canyon. Mm. It's like, wow, this is amazing. But also, what happens if I slip and fall over the edge? Mm. So wonder does that to you. It's like, and we're seeing that with AI. It's like, there's a fear that we'll fall over the edge and lose our humanity. At the same time, there's a wonder that we, the same species that created the Sistine Chapel and uh, the Ode to Joy and and so on can create a machine that seems to be human. Well, anyone who wants to hear more of Gus's thoughts on life, the universe and everything should follow him on social media. Um, Gus is on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Um, I would like everyone to look out for The Disruptors Part 2 part one and two, and also Electric Graffiti. I think those books are still in print. Is that correct? Yes, I think they all are. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'd like everyone to ask for those by name. Um, Gus, thank you so much for your time. It was fantastic. Fantastic. I could have done that all day. (laughs) Thanks, Fiona. Thank uh, Thank you very much for the opportunity. It was such a treat having Gus in the studio today. I was fascinated by everything he had to say. Gail, what did you think about what he said about reviewing and useful reviews versus not useful reviews? There was so much stuff there, but I do have a point of disagreement, Mm, um, which is I I kind of love it when someone just says, I recommend this book. And if I know that person, if if you recommend a book, then that's all I need to know. If Fiona recommends a book, I read that book. Um, And I don't need to know more than that. So, So I'm not sure I agreed with what he said, everything he said about reviewing. Uh, What did you feel about that? Well, I personally find it very useful to get a, if you liked this book, you will also like that one because that kind of comparison Mm. I am influenced by. I'm actually more influenced by that than a review in maybe a formal newspaper or magazine or website. Um, And I think you get to know 
who to trust mm. on these social media book reviewing sites. Don't you have your favorite people that you always trust? A hundred percent. There's some, there's some people who review a lot and you learn that if they loved it, you love it. And that's what you need to know. And there are also some that you know, if they loved it, you might hate it. <laughs> so that, that was an interesting aspect for me. What else did you take out of that? Well, I was very interested in what he had to say about writing on the go, like when he's out and about with his daily life and uh, he just picks up his phone and dictates an idea mm. or uh, quickly types something up and that he ends up with these fragments of writing that he then puts together into a more mm. coherent whole late in the day. That is the way I used to write. When I still had kids at home and I was rushing about doing the mom thing um, and maybe there'd be a 20-minute appointment at the orthodontist, I, I would use that time to get 200 words written mm. on my phone, which I would then email to myself and incorporate into part of a larger whole at a later stage. So that kind of writing on the go is something that appeals to me. That's fascinating because it's something I don't do. And I was on a book panel recently with a woman who writes her entire novels on her phone in those gaps. Right, the whole right, right. book yes. is there on her phone. And I was fascinated by that. It's making me feel a little bit inadequate. <laughs> maybe I need to use my time more, more thoughtfully. Um, but also maybe I need to not have a nervous breakdown. So it's weighing up <laughs> those things. <laughs> what did you get from so, what Gus said? I was fascinated by his positive attitude. Um, mm. you know, I'm, I'm very excited by people who look at the world with excitement. And I think that the way he faces disruptions as possibilities. Yes. Whereas a lot of us face disruption as an, an obstacle, the end of the world, a disruption, yes. a negative word. And I think that's something I want to take away from this conversation is when I have that initial negative reaction of, oh my God, this is the end of the world, mm. to step back and go, actually, how is this a good thing? How is this a creative thing? How is this a useful thing for me? And he's given me some ideas about artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and the way one can use it in genre writing that I actually want to explore further and having a positive attitude gives you those opportunities. So I was very inspired by that. I love that. I've always known that about Gus, mm. um, that he is this kind of tech utopian, that he has a, a pretty sunny outlook on the world that I also find inspiring. I was also, he mentioned Anne Lamott and it reminded mm. me and just as we get to our, what we, the advice we're giving for the week. Yes. Anne Lamott has got one of the best, um, writing memoirs, writing books that I have ever read. It's called Bird by Bird. Oh, I haven't read it. Um, it, it's fantastic. And Anne Lamott is, as a writer, she does have this kind of zany spiritual religious side to her. And I'm not that sort of person at all. I'm not woo woo. I'm not religious. Um, but I found her advice about writing very practical, very meaningful. And I love that. I would strongly suggest any wannabe writer reads that. What do you have for the wannabe writers this week, Fiona? Something that Gus said really resonated with me, which was the advice he gave me all those years ago of putting yourself into the story. Don't be afraid of putting your perspective into the story. And I remember when I was a young starting out writer, I felt as though I had to make characters up from scratch and that I and my life were inherently not interesting. And when I think back on the fact that I was 
a youngster during the liberation of South Africa, mm. um, a young white woman going through the the coming of democracy to South Africa. That was an interesting perspective. Mm. I never wrote about it. That perspective is gone. It's lost to history. I felt as though I had nothing to contribute, but I actually wish I had. I wish I'd had that confidence to write about my own perspective, to put my perspective into my writing in some mm. way. And to those of you who are young and starting out, um, yes, you don't yet have experience. You, you haven't been seasoned by life as such, but that youth perspective, that young perspective on the world and your particular environment, whatever it might be. Mm. You might think that you're sitting in maths at school and you've got nothing to offer. It is a perspective mm. and don't be afraid to insert it into mm. your writing. And I think bringing it back to one of the things Gus said, we are living through revolution after revolution after revolution. We don't feel like we are. Yes. But in terms of IT, AI, tech, we are living through a huge, an age that history will look back at, like we look back at the Industrial Revolution. This is a time of change. And all of our reactions to that are interesting. Yes, it's absolutely head-spinning change. I mean, we just lived through a world-threatening pandemic, mm. and uh, and now things are changing faster than we can keep track of. So those who are documenting that and their perspective on that are, are doing us all a service, mm. I believe. Absolutely. So if you've been inspired by what Gus had to say, if you've read the book Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, if you have any comments on this podcast, we are on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram. Please send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.